Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon Belden-Castingway, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today, I am joined by Ted Shaw, Wesleyan class of 1976. Ted, to start out, can you tell me a bit about your current professional role? I am uh, the Julius L. Chambers Distinguished Professor of Law and the Director of Civil Rights at the University of North Carolina Law School. So that's my dual job. I uh, teach uh, civil procedure and constitutional law, uh, and I also run a civil rights center. Now, in preparation for this interview, I watched a wonderful video of you and Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor speaking together at an event for the American Constitution Society, and you both spoke about your childhoods in the Bronx. Could you tell our listeners a bit about that childhood and lead us up to your decision to attend Wesleyan? Well, I, uh, I grew up uh, mostly in the Bronx, started off in Harlem. Uh, but grew up in a public housing project in the Bronx, uh, and coincidentally, um, Sonia Sotomayor, who was my high school classmate, uh, grew up in another public housing project uh, about um, uh, maybe three-quarters of a mile away. Uh, I often say in jest that uh, I grew up in the Castle Hill houses, and uh, Sonia grew up in... Uh, the Bronxdale Houses, uh, which are now called the Sonia Sotomayor Houses, uh, Castle Hill is still called the Castle Hill Houses. <laughs> Maybe that'll change. <laughs> uh, I'm not looking for that, uh, but I couldn't resist it. So uh, I went to Catholic school growing up, and that made a huge difference. Um, with respect to the opportunities that I was afforded as opposed to those of my childhood friends, or at least many of my childhood friends, it made a huge difference in my life. And I ended up going to Cardinal Spelman High School, but uh, I did not know that I would uh, be able to go to college. It was not something that I took for granted. It was something I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to find my way to uh, college, how to choose a college, uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, I one of the big things in my life that made a huge difference was that I ended up in a program for African-American young men, um, and it was a leadership project. That made a, a, a huge difference in my life. I wouldn't be where and who I am without that, but in, in a way, in a real sense, it was through that program that I found my way to Wesleyan, which I knew nothing about. I didn't even apply to Wesleyan until uh, the January of my senior year in high school, and uh, I was waitlisted. And come May, I was still on the wait list and uh, was thinking about going to uh, a city college. I was raised by my uh, stepmother. My mother died when I was very young. My father wasn't um, much of a father, and my mother was encouraging me to go into the Air Force, but I really had been, uh, by that time, uh, set on fire by the Civil Rights Movement, uh, which morphed into the Black Consciousness Movement, 
And I had decided that I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer someday, but I had no idea how to get there. Uh, so this uh, Roman Catholic priest, uh, and I know they've gotten a lot of bad publicity in recent years, but this is a good man. Uh, he brought me up to Wesleyan in May, early May, a beautiful day. Um, and I saw the campus. So, you know, he talked to an admissions officer while I wandered around, uh, and I fell in love with the place. So a week later, I got a letter saying I was admitted, and um, a little while after that, uh, a full scholarship, and that began my uh, long and deep love affair with my alma mater. So that's how I got to Westland. Tell me a bit about your experience while you were here. Uh, you mentioned that you knew you were interested in being a civil rights lawyer. Did that waver at all while you were here? Did you explore other options? Did you stay on that path? Well, uh, you know, I don't, I don't say that this is a model for everyone. In fact, I'd probably say the opposite. Um, in fact, I was, uh, uh, I did not waver. Um, I was always on that path. Uh, and I think this is uh, a kind of rare example. Uh, it was an exception to what I think usually happens with people. Um, I knew what I wanted to do, and I set a path, and I was blessed to be able to do that. Now, uh, I often say that I think people ought to be open to all kinds of things. It's a time in young people's life when they can grow, experiment, learn, uh, for goodness sake. Uh, we really don't even know who we are at that point in life. And so, uh, you know, I'm not saying that that's, a, uh, uh, that's, that's the way to do these things. But for me, um, it, it all worked out well. You mentioned that you were influenced by the civil rights movement of the 1960s in terms of your career decision-making. But there's a lot of things that you could have done that wasn't specifically law. What made you choose that specifically? Well, I, I think that I, um, I hesitate for a moment. I have to try to think back and remember this. I know I was exposed to law in some ways, but not very deeply. Uh, you know, I remember, like most people in our generation, uh, you know, Justice Sotomayor talks about this too. Uh, you know, we watched Perry Mason, an old TV show, great TV show. Um, you know, I love uh, Perry Mason. Uh, I remember uh, being exposed to uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, mm -hmm. um, but that's fictional. Uh, I also knew who Thurgood Marshall was. Mm -hmm. And the more I learned about the story of what the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund lawyers did, uh, not only in Brown versus Board of Education, but really uh, through all the cases they litigated, I thought that was something that I wanted to do, that I wanted to be part of. Uh, and I read and I read and I read. I read everything. Um, but uh, part of what I read uh, was uh, black history, African-American history, and uh, books about the politics of the civil rights movement. Uh, I believe 
deeply then, and I do now, even though we're being deeply challenged right now on the score in the rule of law. You know, I believe in finding nonviolent ways uh, to make our nation live up to its ideals. Um, and I thought law was the best way to do it. You know, we're a country that resolved many of our most difficult disputes through the rule of law. Uh, when we have moments like uh, we have had recently and are having, there are some people who uh, don't believe in that. They get uh, uh, frustrated. They despair. Um, they sink into nihilism. Um, and uh, I, I don't think that's a palatable alternative. So in a sense, it was very selfish of me to pursue this path uh, because I think I probably would have gone crazy if I didn't find a constructive way to engage in the work of racial justice and change for our country. You know, I don't think there's anything really altruistic about it. In some ways, it was very selfish. Uh, it has kept me from a kind of insanity that sometimes people can sink into, uh, sometimes with good reason given our nation's long struggle uh, with racism and inequality. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was a hopeful choice. And with, with that in mind, with that career goal in mind, how did you go about choosing a law school? Oh, my. Um, I, I think I wanted to, I know I wanted to go to one of the best law schools possible. Uh, I was a New Yorker, and in my view, the best law school in New York was Columbia. Um, you know, and uh, as it happens, Columbia has had a long and uh, deep history of uh, engagement with lawyers who did civil rights work. Uh, Jack Greenberg, the second director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund, who succeeded and was hand-chosen by Thurgood Marshall, uh, was a Columbia law student. Constant Baker Motley, Columbia law grad. Um, you know, I can mention others. Robert Carter, uh, one of the Legal Defense Fund staff lawyers and one of the the great civil rights lawyers, and he was as responsible as anybody else for Brown versus Board of Education, uh, you know, Columbia Law School. Um, so uh, I could mention others, but there was this, this history of involvement of civil rights lawyers at Columbia. I don't remember when I became aware of that, uh, but somewhere along the line I did. And I applied to a number of law schools, um, but I, I eventually was um, admitted to Columbia. Uh, and I say without any hesitation, I was waitlisted at Westland. I was waitlisted at Columbia Law School. Um, I, in fact, remember one of my professors in college telling me I shouldn't even apply to Columbia. 
but I did. And I was admitted to Columbia. Um, so I often say that uh, I know that if there's a heaven above, I haven't been good enough to get in straight out. But maybe I can get in off the wait list. <laughs> uh, so uh, Columbia ended up being the place where I went to law school. And I ended up taking Jack Greenberg's seminar and got to know him. And um, I went on from there. Was law school what you expected it to be? I didn't know what to expect from law school. I I say now with some slight embarrassment that although I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, I didn't know what that entailed. I didn't even know there was a real difference. I didn't understand the difference between civil and criminal law. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure what I expected. I didn't have anybody who told me what it was going to be like other than a few people I knew had gone to law school or were in law school ahead of me. Uh, but all they said is that it was really, really hard. It was a lot of work. Uh, so I don't know if I had uh, expectations. Uh, I will say that um, in law school, uh, I probably did not take advantage of all that I could have taken advantage of. But at the same time, uh, law school was very internally um, segregated in some ways along lines of race and class. And I say that uh, to say that the students of color um, relied on each other. They often put together their study groups because we weren't invited to be parts of other study groups. At the same time, I made relationships, I made friendships with um, people who were Americans, not Latino, uh, white folks, um, that I didn't fully appreciate them. And they became friendships and relationships that have lasted throughout my life. Um, I assumed that most of the white students in law school, uh, that they were privileged, uh, that they sat around their family tables, had dinner, and they talked about stocks and debentures and threw around terms that I never had heard of and didn't understand. Um, some of them may have. Some of them certainly were privileged, many of them. Uh, but uh, not all of them. And some of them were just as lost in the first year as I was. Um, and ultimately, uh, I came to understand over time that uh, regardless of where we came from, by virtue of being admitted to Columbia Law School, if we weren't privileged when we got there, we were privileged uh, by the time we got out. Right. So how did you decide what to do after graduation? Well, I uh, wanted very much to work at two places. There were two dream jobs for me. One was the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, but they didn't hire straight out of law school, and when they did hire... Uh, you didn't apply to them. They they called you. Uh, the other place was the Civil Rights Division of the U United States Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. And I knew their storied history and roles in the Civil Rights Movement. I knew about, for example, John Doerr, who had been uh, the head of the Civil Rights Division. Uh, and uh, John Doerr single-handedly 
in one of his finest moments, faced down a, a, a mob at the University of Mississippi um, uh, and uh, was at the University of Alabama also. Um, and in many ways, uh, you know, he was a, uh, in, in Selma for the marches there, um, you know, Selma to Montgomery, and in many ways was uh, one of the great heroes of law in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, so I knew about the Justice Department. I wanted to work there and uh, to, uh, to tell the story in a summary fashion. I was fortunate enough to be able to, to get a position through their honors program. And so uh, after graduating from law school in 1979, I joined the uh, the Carter Administration Justice Department Civil Rights Division, where I began to litigate housing and school desegregation cases, and uh, it was a great start uh, to a legal career. I ended up in court uh, and um, got deep and quick experience, and I have to tell you that uh, I will never forget what it was like to stand up in court as a young lawyer, really a uh, um, a rookie, but I was able to say, uh, Your, Your Honor, my name is Theodore M. Shaw, and I represent the United States of America. That was a privilege. It was an honor, um, and it was a wonderful experience to work for uh, the United States Department of Justice. Uh, that uh, experience, however, uh, turned when um, President Reagan was elected because his Justice Department had another set of policies uh, and practices that they, that they put into place. Um, and I know that in this country, for many people, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, was and is a hero. I wish I could say that, um, but for me and for many African-Americans, most African-Americans, he was not. And as a consequence, um, I found myself in conflict with the people who were running the Civil Rights Division under that then new administration. And eventually uh, my continuation there became um, unpalatable. So you obviously went on to a long and storied career with your other dream employer, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Did they tap you on the shoulder or did you knock on their door? They tapped me. Um, I dreamed uh, and they made my dream come true. I, um, As I said, I was in conflict with the people who ran the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department and, uh, you know, I could... I could tell much about that story that um, uh, I think has historical significance, uh, but uh, I was looking for a way out because it was clear that you know I wasn't going to stay there. Uh, and uh, I got a call one day in my office from Jack Greenberg, uh, the head of the Legal Defense Fund, and Jack said. Uh, he understood that I was doing school desegregation cases and that I did them well, and I told him that, well, I'm flattered. I, I'm doing them the best I can. And he asked me would I come up to New York 
uh, and talk to them about working at the Legal Defense Fund. Well, my heart leapt through my throat. Uh, I said, of course. And I came up to New York. I flew up to New York, and I spent a day in the office. And what I didn't know at the time was that uh, when Jack uh, did these things, he had his mind made up already. Um, and um, I remember that I spent that day in the office, but I got a an offer immediately. And so um, on March 5th of 1982, I... Uh, joined the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, where I spent most of the next 26 years. Thinking back on that experience, given the circumstances under which you left the Department of Justice, how do you think your career might have been different under different circumstances? In other words, if Reagan had not been elected, if you hadn't moved on to the NAACP LDF. Uh, are there things that maybe you were able to do at the LDF that you couldn't have done at the Department of Justice or vice versa? Oh, sure. You know, the Justice Department, as I said, was, is a great place to work, was a great place to work, although it's gone through um, different changes under different administrations. Um, I don't know if I would have ended up being a career lawyer at the Justice there were many career lawyers there um, at the time um, who uh, who really rendered great service uh, to our country, not only in the Civil Rights Division, but in uh, throughout the Justice Department, but the Civil Rights Division particularly. Uh, how long I would have and could have done that work, I don't know. Um, I know that uh, in the... Uh, leadership positions within the Justice Department, those were uh, appointed positions. They were political positions. They weren't career positions um, uh, for the most part. I mean, one could be a career lawyer and end up being a section chief. Uh, but the assistant attorneys general, the deputy assistant attorneys general, they were all appointed positions. So I don't know what that would have been like to stay there. Uh, but I certainly had wanted to stay there longer. Uh, working at the Legal Defense Fund, uh, while I no longer could get up in court and uh, have the resources of the federal government behind me, uh, at the same time, there are constrictions uh, when you work, constraints when you work for the federal government. Uh, and so I, I didn't have those at the Legal Defense Fund. Uh, the, at the Legal Defense Fund, uh, the director counsel, Jack Greenberg, he pretty much let us uh, litigate the cases um, and gave us, uh, for the most part, a free hand. Um, that didn't mean we could do everything and anything we, didn't, we wanted to do, and we had to get cases approved and by him and his uh, deputy, James Nabrit, Jim Nabrit. But uh, it was um, a tremendous experience. Uh, the legal defense one, I came to say in time, was and has been legal counsel to black America on issues of race. Uh, so the struggle for racial justice, uh, the legal defense one was in the middle of it. 
Um, and so having that opportunity to work for uh, LDF, uh, used to be called the Inc. Fund, uh, NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Incorporated Inc. Um, so, you know, working for the Inc. Fund, the LDF, was one of the signal honors in my life. Um, uh, and our relationships with lawyers and clients throughout the South in particular, but around the country, uh, was one that exposed me to people whom I met, worked with, uh, that um, uh, was such a great honor. I mean, these were uh, some of the great Americans, um, I would say. Uh, and so um, uh, it was tremendous. Uh, and as I said, there was a great deal of, of uh, freedom uh, accorded to the lawyers to take these cases and run with them. So I did. At what point did you realize that you were on track to become director counsel yourself? Um, so as I think about that, you know, I probably think that uh, somewhere in the 80s or 90s, I certainly um, uh, began to think about that possibly, certainly in the 90s, because that's when I was chosen to be associate director counsel, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the number two job, the deputy job. Uh, you know, Thurgood Marshall is the great hero of the legal defense line, and so there's no question that uh, I think any lawyer who worked for the Legal Defense Fund um, probably dreamed about walking in his footsteps if it was possible for anybody to do that. Um, but I also would say that the the longer I served, the more I understood that um, in some ways, um, you know, I, I didn't come to that in, uh, with ambition that um, I might have thought about when I was younger, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is I also realized over time, and certainly when I became director counsel, that the, uh, the job of... of uh, the legal defense fund lawyers, when you litigate the cases, that's really what I love. You know, one of the things that um, I'm conscious of, or I became conscious of, um, is that um, when you become head of an organization like the legal defense fund, you're no longer doing the work that you came there to do. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, you know, it, it's... It's fundraising. It's administration. Right. Um, you know, it's running an institution. It's dealing with a board. Uh, the work that I loved was the work of uh, the cases, and you get to make those decisions and decide, you know, what the organization does and how it functions when you're at the head of it. Um, but the work that I really loved was the work of doing the cases. Um, I was for 11 years the associate director counsel, and um, director counsel was Elaine Jones, um, who's a force of nature, and she and I have a very close relationship to this day. Um, 
And so in many ways, uh, in those 11 years, I was doing a lot of uh, the work that uh, Elaine shared with me, but at the same time, uh, you know, she was ultimately responsible. That's a different experience uh, for anything and everything that came through the organization. Uh, but when I became Associate Director Counsel in 1993, uh, sure, there was the possibility I would be director counsel, but by the time I got the position, I wasn't giddy about it, and I didn't I didn't have the kind of ambition I've seen some people have for it, quite frankly, um, uh, because uh, more than uh, a kind of uh, ambition and a satisfaction of ambition, uh, when it came to me, I found it to be sobering. I know that both through your work at the LDF as well as through your teaching positions at Michigan, at Columbia, now at UNC, you've been involved in some very high-profile court cases. Could you use one example of one that you found particularly personally meaningful? Well, it's a tough, it's a tough choice because, you know, I mean, and some ways they were all personally meaningful mm-hmm. you know um you know i mean i did a capital punishment case and that had a special kind of uh resonance and experience i could talk about but i i did you know uh, housing discrimination and um voting rights and uh employment whatever kind of case that civil rights lawyers do but i think the one that in some ways um, I am most connected with uh, was the Michigan case or Michigan cases mm-hmm. involving um, depending on how you how you describe it either affirmative action or diversity efforts in higher education um, and it 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 was a uh, a case, or there were actually two cases that also taught me that uh, you know you can think that you know how you might end up being engaged in an issue in a moment at any given moment, uh, but fate has other choices for you. Um, so, in 1990, after what then seemed to be a significant amount of time, uh, almost a dozen years of being a civil rights litigator. Um, turns out that it was uh, a shorter period of time than I thought. Uh, I had an opportunity to teach at Michigan Law School. And uh, once I began to engage with them and talk about that possibility, I also got um, uh, entreaties from other law schools and ended up with about four or five offers, and, but ended up in Michigan. And once I get there, I got there rather, uh, to uh, cut this story as short as I can, after some time, I went in to see the dean of the law school who had hired me, Lee Bollinger, and I told him that I thought that there were some issues and problems with the way the law school was doing admissions, and I didn't think we were in, in compliance with the only governing precedent at that time on the issue of uh, admissions uh, and affirmative action or diversity efforts, and that was the Baki case. 
and we went round and round on it. And uh, at first, he didn't quite grasp, I think, what I was saying. Not because he's uh, he wasn't um, uh, you know smart enough to get it, because this is an extremely brilliant mind. But it wasn't his area of law. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. by the time um, you know we had talked about it a little bit, though, he got it, and uh, he appointed a committee. I served on that committee, and we reviewed uh, the admissions policies at Michigan, and uh, we redid them in a way that made the law school less vulnerable to the kinds of lawsuits that conservatives, um, conservative lawyers, were uh, looking to bring. Um, They were uh, looking at public universities around the country and trying to undo Baki and to have uh, the issue of affirmative action in higher education resolved in a way that made uh, conscious attempts to admit students of color uh, unconstitutional. Um, So uh, uh, I played a role in uh, putting Michigan Law School in a position where eventually uh, when they were sued, uh, they could withstand that lawsuit. And that's what happened in, um, in the 1990s. Uh, a few years later, uh, I had returned to the legal defense fund by then as deputy director. Um, and uh, the Michigan cases, the two of them, the undergraduate case and the law school case, uh, went up together to the Supreme Court. Uh, I was lead counsel for black and Latino students in the undergraduate case, um, which did not have a plan that uh, was constructed in the way the law school plan was. Uh, But we intervened uh, and represented black and Latino students in the undergraduate case. I could not play that role in the law school case because since I've served on the committee that redid the policies, um, I had uh, a lawyer witness problem. I was deposed. You don't want to be a lawyer in the same case in which you're a witness. Right. Uh, so um, uh, in that case, the legal defense fund uh, ended up being an amicus friend of the court. And we, but that in some ways worked out because we were able to file a brief that allowed us to say some things that we wouldn't have been able to say and do the same way if we had been uh, in the... Um, in the case representing parties, uh, in which case you're in your briefing and your arguments fact bound, um, and we argued about the way the Fourteenth Amendment had been uh, distorted and misinterpreted and misapplied uh, in uh, these cases and by the Supreme Court for a number of years. Uh, how much effect that had is, um, you know, anyone's guess, but. Uh, it was something that we had to institutionally get off our chest. Um, in the undergraduate case, the admissions plan was struck down eventually, which was okay with me uh, because, for me, it was like you gave the conservatives on the court some red meat. They struck that down, but the more important thing was that we were able to win um, a, uh, uh, a holding in the law school case, in the Gruder case, um, that said that institutions could consciously try to uh, admit students of color. 
these battles go on today. Just right. this uh, this term, as you probably know, uh, Fisher mm-hmm. uh, out of Texas was decided. And that ended up being um, a win. Um, but pending, as you may have been alluding to uh, in the court right now, is the case against UNC, which is um, being um, brought by the same folks who are uh, currently suing Harvard Law School. Not, I'm not. I'm sorry, not Harvard Law School. Harvard University, the undergraduate. Um, and this is the first time that a private institution is being sued in one of these cases. So, I've been in the middle of these battles for a long time. I often talk about the fact that I was at the Supreme Court when Baki was announced. I remember being in the court that day in 1978, um, June 28, 1978. I remember the date. And uh, it's turned out to be a big chunk of my professional life. I have heard you in other interviews use the phrase, we have work to do. And you've already done tremendous work in the area of civil rights. But given your current role and given where we are as a country today, and this is July 22nd, 2016, for the record that we're conducting this interview, on what areas do you personally feel a responsibility to focus on over the rest of your career? Well, um, this particular moment is a very difficult moment. It's difficult because of what's been going on in uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the long chain of incidents in which uh, black and brown people, unarmed or, or innocent, um, even in some instances, if they happen to have a gun. I'm not a gun person, but, you know, um, we have a Second Amendment culture. The Constitution allows it, and there are states in which there are open carry laws. And so just because one hasn't, one has a gun doesn't mean that person should be shot and killed by the police. Uh, you know, so I'm thinking about Mr. Sterling recently in Baton Rouge, and they said has had a gun. Uh, even if he did, even if he did, didn't mean he should have been killed. Well, this is a long, long uh, chain of incidents uh, in which law enforcement has taken the lives of uh, people who were innocent of any crime, innocent of wrongdoing, um, or even if, in some instances, they might have been um, uh, not innocent of some violation of law. Many times they're petty. You know, a an individual losing his life over uh, selling loose cigarettes um, or, uh, you know, a... Um, uh, a man, you know, peddling CDs, uh, someone with a broken taillight, on and on and on. So this is a tough time. Um, and I think many people, and in particular many white people, with all respect to them, um, that is due, um, they don't quite understand the level of anger within black communities that are very much marginalized and isolated racially and economically, uh, and how many people in those communities simply 
have seen reason to give up on hoping that they'll be treated fairly um, by law. It's tough for me um, because I've devoted my life to saying that the rule of law is um, how we should live. Uh, and so I've been very um, heavy-hearted in recent weeks, and I am now, even today. Um, and I'm also heavy-hearted about the police who have been killed uh, by young black men who, um, you know, some people say they're uh, mentally imbalanced. I don't know if they are or not, but certainly they become unhinged by um, anger and frustration um, and a descent into violence and nihilism uh, is um, counter to everything that I've worked for and that many of us have worked for. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we talk about what we have to spend our time and attention on, certainly the the issues of, of civil rights with respect to uh, violence and uh, the police, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what the nation is thinking about right now. The criminal justice system has horribly failed. Uh, reform of the criminal justice system, the so-called war on drugs. Um, but I also keep coming back to the issues of education, because education is the engine of opportunity. And, uh, you know, our schools have resegregated. There are those who are abandoning public schools. They are trying to um, really destroy the concept of public spaces and places. Uh, when you overlay that with the um, political uh, scenario right now, um, you know, so many white Americans who fear uh, becoming uh, uh, a racial minority group now. That's never happened in this country. Uh, so many who have reacted to the election of the first African-American president by um, by really uh, unleashing a virulent racism, um, it isn't dog whistle anymore. It's right up front. And then, uh, although I'm not trying to be, um, uh, you know, partisan, uh, a, um, a presidential race and a candidate who is exploiting uh, much of that, um, you know, this is a difficult time. Um, and so uh, there's still a great deal of work to do, um, and there's a lot of reason to be um, despondent and even to despair, but you know, I refuse to do it, can't do it. Um, the other piece that I would say is that at this point in my life that I've been doing now is through teaching. Uh, you know, it's an opportunity to pass on the baton to another generation. I'm conscious of where I am in my life. I don't have any intention to leave here soon, but that's not always within our hands. Um, but I do know that it's important to pass the baton. Uh, if 
we don't do that, uh, it, it's self-defeating. Um, so I've been blessed with the opportunity to teach. Um, I am inspired by uh, the great civil rights icon, uh, Ella Baker, who uh, who said that, um, you know, struggling myself don't mean a whole lot. I've come to realize that teaching others to stand up and fight is the only way our struggle survives. And we who believe in freedom cannot rest. That That's captured in... Uh, a song I hope you know by the group Sweet Honey and the Rock um, uh, by that title. But Ella Baker was the inspiration. So I, I think about those words all the time and, and more. Uh, and that's why I am right now in my life. It's uh, passing a baton. So what do you think is the single most important piece of advice you would give to a college student, a law student, with aspirations similar to your own back in the 70s? Um, be open-minded, even if you think you know what you want to do, um, and learn as much as you can learn. You know, when I was a law student, for example, I took corporations, tax, uh, trust in estates. I mean, I just, just didn't take civil rights law. As an undergraduate, and I was in CSS at Wesleyan. It's a broad, deep um, educational um, experience that um, that uh, refined me, uh, required me to to write and think and. Uh, you know, it was um, the most challenging program that I could find. Um, so I encourage people to do that. I encourage them to uh, to form relationships with their colleagues um, and not only those who look like them or come from similar background. Um, I encourage them to, yes, be activists, um, but to pursue academic excellence also, um, as well as they can, um, and to find whatever it is that, um, you know, sets them on fire and pursue it, whatever it is. Um, so, uh, you know, it's uh, excellence in, in all that we do, uh, knowing that, um, you know, we won't always uh, come out on top, but you just do the best you can with what you got, as Thurgood Marshall said. Ted Shaw, Wesleyan Class of 1976, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.